This episode was originally broadcast in 2017. Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explores the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Nathan Connolly. Now, if you're new to the podcast, Brian, Nathan, and I are all historians, and every week we take a topic in the news and explore it across American history. So this week we have the second in our series on immigration. And basically we're going to pick up where we left off in the early 1900s. Now at that point, U.S. officials were at their wits' end. Illegal immigrants were sneaking into the United States from Mexico. As one government official complained, We couldn't stop them. If we had the Navy on the waterfront, we couldn't stop them. Not even a Chinese wall, 9,000 miles in length and built over rivers and deserts and mountains and along the seashores, would seem to permit a permanent solution. This is historian Erica Lee. Now, guys, this all sounds pretty familiar, right? Sadly, yeah. That sounds huge to me, Joanne. (laughs) Huge and familiar. Also, much like today, U.S. officials at this point were doing their best to try and catch these people at the border and detain them. But there is a twist. The immigrants are not actually Mexican, but are Chinese. I did not see that coming. (laughs) So wait, this is Chinese immigration from Mexico. Chinese immigration from Mexico. So there must have been a lot of border guards then, yeah? Well, not exactly. There's only a a few dozen of them in the early 1900s, but they're patrolling their line, and they call themselves Chinese catchers. Now, Erica Lee told me that the Chinese immigrants that were sneaking across the border were actually part of an international smuggling ring. These people were furnished with detailed maps, safe houses, and even fake ID papers. There's even a a case uh, in the National Archives where the U.S. immigration officials found a group of about 20 Chinese who were expertly disguised as Mexicans and were being housed in a hut a little south of the border and being taught a few words of Spanish so that if they were caught, they could claim (laughs) to be Mexican and not Chinese. So it was easier to cross the border if you were Mexican and not Chinese. Mm. And how many Chinese are we talking about, Joanne? A good question. Um, Erica Lee says the numbers are hard to pin down, but she said that the best estimates are about one or 2,000 a year. And why are they trying to get into the U.S. from Mexico? Another good question. Well, guys, the basic reason is the Chinese Exclusion Act, which Congress oh. passed in 1882. And this was the first time that the United States targeted immigrants based on race or on national origin. Asian immigrants are not only the first to be excluded or banned, they also become the first illegal or the first undocumented immigrants who try to come to the United States across the U.S.-Canadian and U.S.-Mexican borders. So hold on. You're saying that we didn't have any illegal immigrants until the 1880s? And not only that, that the first illegal immigrants, quote unquote, were actually Chinese and not from Latin America. Yeah, kind of a big double whammy there. Now, Lee says that the Chinese Exclusion Act is a watershed moment in American history. 
it's the the first chapter in our long history of of undocumented immigration and the ways in which immigration will find another way to come into the United States if there's the the means, the will, and jobs waiting for them on this side of the border. Today on Backstory, we're looking at how the United States tries to control who gets in and who's kicked out. This is the second in our two-part series on immigration. Our earlier episode was about immigration bans, But today we're going to be focusing on how the United States polices its borders. We'll hear about a little-known deportation campaign in the 1930s that targeted Mexican immigrants and their American-born children. And we'll also hear how the U.S. immigration bureaucracy has grown dramatically over the 20th century. As we just heard, there weren't any federal restrictions on immigration before the 1880s. Businesses actively recruited immigrants, and they came from all over the world to work in factories, farms, and mines. And while many Americans were ambivalent or even hostile towards those newcomers, they kept coming as long as there were jobs. Which brings us back to my conversation with historian Erica Lee. She pointed out that in the late 19th century, the federal government had just started to police immigration, and the southern border of the United States was still pretty open. Mexico becomes the backdoor for Chinese immigration and later Asian and and even European and Syrian immigration. Um, Those immigrants who find themselves either locked out of the United States because of um, restrictive immigration laws or because they're concerned that, for example, they might not pass the inspections at Ellis Island or another port of entry. And so what's what's bringing these people, what's driving them to cross the desert to get into the United States from Mexico? This is the era of migration. Uh, we call it the century of migration from 1830 to 1930. 35 million immigrants came to the United States during this time period. Just over a million are from Asia. So they, just like all of the Ellis Island immigrants, are coming for the same reasons, for uh, labor, for economic opportunity. Some are fleeing persecution. But they're being focused on as a group that, that has been declared illegal immigrants. So what is the problem with Chinese and Japanese and Korean people who are trying to get into the United States. Asian immigration sparks, really, the first large-scale immigration debates in the United States. Uh, and the debate is should be very recognizable to those of us living today. The arguments about an immigrant group that was just so different than previous immigrants, incapable of assimilation, from a country and a civilization that was diametrically opposite uh, from Mm. Americans and from America, but again, also because they were racially so different, uh, more like African Americans than like European immigrants. So it's it's racial and it's cultural and it's ideological and it's the full spectrum of things to be (laughs) anxious about. Throw economics in there too. Yeah, it's pretty much everything bundled into one. Right. Um, Well, so let me ask you a question uh, that's more geographically based. We're focusing so far, we've been talking about the Mexican border. Does that border stay a a leaky border? I mean, so does the back door kind of become a leaky front door? 
Absolutely. And over the course of the early 20th century, there are U.S. agents paying informants for any information about Chinese who are, are landing in Mexico and, and moving north. And there's also a system of patrolling the border. So we do see an increase in the border patrol from just three officers patrolling the Mexico-California border in 1891 to over 80 by the early 1900s. So it sounds like part of what we're talking about on the border between the United States and Mexico, we've been focusing, obviously, on the story of Asian immigrants trying to get across. But surely there were Mexican people trying to get across, too. How does that play out? So one of the ironies of the Chinese Exclusion Act is that it does ban one group at the same time that there is such immense labor needs in the Southwest. This is a time period when the railroads are continuing to be built. Lumber is continuing to be milled. Um, this is the birth of the great agricultural empires in California and, and many other states. Chinese had provided the labor in all of those industries when they become excluded and when other Asians become excluded, this is when we start relying on Mexican immigrants. And so this, there's a tacit hmm. and maybe also explicit understanding at the border that we need them as laborers. And because hmm. the U.S. Um, government is getting pressure from Southwestern employers to keep those gates open to Mexican laborers. Wow. So let me let me take us for a moment away from the border and take us mm -hmm. into the United States. Um, so let's say we're focusing on uh, some Asian immigrants who are illegally in the United States, but they're in the United States. Are they living in fear? Are they afraid that they're going to get caught and sent back across the border? Or do they assume that once they've crossed that border, that they can sort of incorporate themselves in and, and it's not, they're not living in fear so much? It's absolutely a life under the shadows. And I'll never forget this this one immigration file of a young Chinese-American man in San Francisco. He's suspected of, of coming in under fraudulent pretenses. The Immigration Service has, has um, placed him under surveillance. They catch him unawares uh, coming to work at a Chinese restaurant. He's a low-level Chinese restaurant cook, and he runs for his life, uh, but he leaves his wallet behind. And I remember opening up an immigration file, and his wallet falls out, and there oh, was no gosh. money in it. And I'm just thinking, you know, what he must have had to live the rest of his life, you know, just fearful that anywhere that he was going to show up, it might be the last time that he went to work or went home. And what went through that guy's mind? What happened yeah. to him? Well, you know. Yeah. Um, but but let's take a little bit of a longer view. How does this story that we've been unfolding here about early border control, what does that do to shape immigration policy in the long run? So what's the what's the impact of this ongoing 
sort of struggle that we've been talking about largely taking place on the Mexican border. We have border patrols. And then when that doesn't work, we start instituting interior enforcement, meaning we go after those who we suspect are already in the United States uh, without documentation. We go into their businesses, their schools, we're watching them, we require registration. It completely changes our relationship to immigration from one of complete welcome to one of guarded and measured restriction to one of exclusion and punishment um, mm. so that we have normalized uh, racial profiling uh, right. for certain immigrant groups. And once it becomes normalized, it becomes so much easier to expand that mentality and those policies to other groups. Right. So so there's models that are being set, but everything that we're describing here makes more friction and more tension rather than making things operate any more smoothly. Right. I mean, for the Chinese in America, not only are they singled out for exclusion, they also cannot become naturalized citizens by law. And so those two things um, combined, but also the constant threat of deportation uh, for the Chinese in America, it reinforces self-segregation. Uh, mm. It's clear that we're not wanted here. You know, we can only do so much. We can work here, but we can't become citizens. So for many Chinese American families, mine included, many don't root themselves here um, mm. until, you know, several generations have passed because you just never know when, when you might be kicked out. Erica Lee is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. She's the author of At America's Gates, Chinese Immigration During the Exclusion Era, 1882 to 1943. Now, Joanne, I, I think most of our listeners would be surprised to learn that the Chinese were America's first so-called illegal immigrants. I put that in quotes. And that much like undocumented people today, they lived mostly in the shadows. I have to ask, though, were they also deported? I mean, that's obviously the big story we think about today. Well, some Chinese were deported, but in much smaller numbers than today. So, for example, in 1904, the government expelled nearly 1,800 Chinese citizens. Yeah, but I think, Joanne, we got to think about the size of the federal government at that time. I mean, we had virtually no army, a very small navy. But I think what must have been a shock to the system, Joanne and Nathan, is going from zero <laughs> to 1800. The fact that just a few years before, we really had no apparatus for deporting people. The fact that all of a sudden, 1800 Chinese are deported must have left a lasting impression. Remember, there were only about 80 officers policing the entire U.S.-Mexican border in the early 1900s, which 
compared to today, is mighty small. And there are more than 21,000 Border Patrol agents, 18,000 and change of whom are patrolling the U.S.-Mexico border. This is historian Adam Goodman, who studies deportation. I spoke with him in 2017. He says that the government's ability to police immigration has soared over the last 100 years. Here's just one example. In fiscal year 2017, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that's known as ICE, deported more than 226,000 people. Yo, that's crazy. I mean, I have to imagine that's a large police force or at least a well-developed bureaucracy. Well, it happened over a lot of time, Nathan. In fact, the U.S. Border Patrol, the first official version of this, wasn't established until 1924. As illegal Chinese immigration tapered off, the government redirected its attention to the Mexican migrants who had been traveling back and forth freely and legally for decades. And nearly all of those deported over the past century have been Mexicans. Goodman says the federal government has developed three ways to deport immigrants. The most commonly understood mechanism is formal deportation, which historically was usually by order of an immigration judge and carried more serious consequences if someone tried to re-enter the country in the future. But formal deportations involve arrests, detentions, and court dates. And the process can take a while, which is why those deportations are pretty rare. Plus, they're expensive. The vast majority of people throughout U.S. history, around 50 of the 55 million people deported in U.S. history, in fact, have been deported through what the government euphemistically terms voluntary returns or voluntary departures. Oh, come on. What does that mean? Voluntary? (laughs) Yeah. Well, Goodman says there's nothing voluntary about these deportations. Usually it happens after an immigration official apprehends a migrant who is in the country without authorization, perhaps detains that migrant for a certain amount of time, and then encourages or coerces or in some cases tricks that individual into signing a voluntary departure slip. Obviously, that's a lot faster and cheaper than detaining people and putting them on trial. Deportees sometimes even have to pay their own way home. But there is one more way the government cracks down on undocumented immigrants. And that's through fear campaigns and scare tactics that are meant to get people to self-deport. Because they recognized it would be impossible to actually apprehend and deport all of the undocumented people in the country. You know, that's really a reminder, Brian, about how possible it is for the government to frighten people and, and how powerful that capability can be. And it's especially powerful for governments that don't want to spend a lot of money. You know, it doesn't cost a lot of money to scare people. Fear as fiscal responsibility, is that right? That's right, Nathan. (laughs) So, Brian, give me an example. Well, there's a very stark example from the 1930s, Nathan. We'll get back to my conversation with Adam Goodman in a moment. But first, let's dive into this Depression-era story. Back then, an estimated 500,000 to 2 million Mexican nationals and Mexican-Americans were pressured to leave the United States. This little-known episode was called Mexican Repatriation. But some of those targeted say that's just a euphemism. Ed Ayers and I explored this moment for another Backstory episode last year. Here's Ed. 
Now, there never was a coordinated program or a top-down mandate from President Hoover or Roosevelt to expel people of Mexican descent, but the White House did set the tone by staging raids across the country to deport Mexican-American families. Francisco Balderrama, a historian who has studied these repatriation programs, says the goal was to ease unemployment for Anglo-Americans. This expulsion of Mexican nationals and American citizens of Mexican descent is done frequently because of the argument there's not enough jobs, that jobs were for real Americans. Valderrama says that Mexican nationals were targeted because they were one of the more recent immigrant groups to arrive at the start of the 20th century. And the key thing to keep in mind that in more prosperous times, particularly the roaring 1920s, Mexican workers were regarded as essential. But now with the Great Depression, they are regarded as foreign, they're regarded as unwanted, they're regarded as they're not supposed to be here. The private sector also tried to get Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans to leave the country. In some cases, businesses would simply refuse to hire Mexican workers. At the same time, we have private businesses. We have U.S. Steel, Southern Pacific Railroad, that are telling their Mexican workers, you would be better off in Mexico and providing them with transportation to the border and to Mexico. Anti-Mexican sentiment was so pervasive that it even trickled down to local governments. Balderrama says Los Angeles County is a perfect example. And it's important to focus on L.A. County because it had the largest concentration of Mexican nationals and American citizens of Mexican descent at that historical moment. And it became kind of the model about how to do this elsewhere in the country. This is an interview with Mrs. Emilia Valenciana. Christine Valenciana has spent the past four decades collecting stories of those affected by this Depression-era repatriation, including her mother's. Okay, Mom, why don't you start by telling me where you're from first? From Los Angeles, California. When were you born? April 10th, 1926. Valenciana recorded this interview back in 1971, It was part of a college oral history project. She collected the voices of people who'd been affected by L.A. County's repatriation program. My grandfather, Natividad Castaneda, who had been here in Los Angeles since 1909, he was employed as a stonemason, bricklayer, skilled craftsman, and then there's no work for him. You know, that he here he was left and with a family, you know, a couple of children to raise and no work, living off of welfare. And well, yeah, we went to Mexico because my dad asked the, the county, he asked to, to be sent. My mother was nine years old when this happened. She had never been to Mexico. My dad asked us if we wanted to go with him. We told him, yes, you know, our place was with him. He was our father. We weren't going to be left here and be made wars of the state. That's what we would have been, wars of the state. So we left with my father. Now, do you know for sure if he asked the county? He told me he 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 asked the county that he wanted to be sent back to Mexico. So I I guess they paid for our fare, Christine. 
Many of Valenciana's interviewees said the same thing. No one had forced them to go to Mexico. Rather, their families wanted to go back, and they went of their own accord. Perhaps listeners are going to say it's voluntary. Well, that's the easy way out. And that's not really looking at the complexity of the problem. We're really looking at, at, at human beings. I mean, I can't believe that my grandfather, who had been here since 1909, had any intentions of ever returning to Mexico. But she says Los Angeles County actively encouraged people to leave. One of the county officials who ran this program was Rex Thompson. He was the head of charities for Los Angeles County during the early 1930s. Valenciana interviewed him in the early 1970s. Thompson acknowledged that he weighed the costs of providing aid to a Mexican family versus sending them to Mexico. We had thousands of Mexican nationals who were out of work. The Mexican family were costing us $110 a month. I can remember those figures. We could ship them back and feed them well and decently by, by train for $74 a family. You know, there was a campaign to, you know, uh, get Mexicans to be removed. And so the county agencies, they would, they would send out people. They were recruiters, basically. Social workers that were Americans of Mexican descent, but naturally fluent in the language, or that were Mexican nationals fluent in the language, to go out and, I want to emphasize, offer repatriation to these people. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad to say that they were a proud people, and most of them didn't want to be on relief. That interview is very important because it really is the voice and the thinking of the time of the policymakers and the predominant voice that, that people think they're, they're doing something good. I mean, he really believed that what he did was uh, the greatest humanitarian act that, that could have been done. The reality was harsher. Balderrama says these social workers didn't explain the full consequences of repatriation. According to American law, that if a county is pays for your transportation to return to Mexico or to go to Mexico, then you're stamped that you can't re-enter the country. Well, in the case of my grandfather, his passport, and again, he had been here since 1909, stamp it, deported. Well, he had no way to get back here. Balderrama says that more than half of those who went to Mexico during the Great Depression were American citizens. Well, simply, it's unconstitutional because you cannot deport an American citizen from his or her country. Many of them were children who'd never even been to Mexico. Because the kids, you know, used to pick on me because I was an American citizen. But a lot of people did discriminate against us because we were Americans. We didn't belong there. Now, isn't it strange now here the Anglos discriminate us, discriminate against us because we're Mexicans? So really, where do we belong? Valenciana's mother eventually made it back to the United States, but many others never returned to the land of their birth. 
it's a lost generation. I mean, there are people that were lost in Mexico, people without the documentation, people that were denied, you know, their, their right to a life as an American. It's hard to know if these programs actually provided more jobs or relief for so-called real Americans. But Blinciana thinks that's beside the point. If the government wants to ease unemployment, it should try to help all Americans. In terms of unemployment, well, who has the right to be employed? Who, is, who has the right to make that determination? I feel that this country should have done something for their citizens instead of getting rid of them like the way they did. Christine Valenciana and Francisco Balderrama helped us tell that story. Valenciana is a professor emerita in education at California State University, Fullerton. And Balderrama is emeritus professor at California State University, Los Angeles, and co-author of Decade of Betrayal, Mexican Repatriation in the 1930s. That story shows how fear tactics are experienced by those who are targeted. But before we wrap up the show, I want to return to my conversation with historian Adam Goodman, because a lot has happened since the 1930s. Goodman says formal deportations have spiked over the past 20 years. Back in 1986, there were fewer than 25,000 formal deportations. That number's jumped to about 400,000 a year. One reason for the surge is a 1996 law signed by President Bill Clinton. That made more crimes deportable offenses. Another is the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001. Immigration and security have increasingly become inseparable in the minds of officials and policymakers, especially since 9-11. So the funding for immigration enforcement and for the deportation machine has increased dramatically. Immigration detention has also increased, as well as the number of agents on the line. So you've mentioned President Clinton in the 90s being a part of this. We know in 2001, it was George W. Bush who was president. President Obama was called by many of his critics to be the deporter-in-chief. I mean, what difference does Donald Trump make in any of this? I asked Goodman that very question. I think it's a little bit too early to say, since things are changing so rapidly. But I, I think we can say at this point, at least, that Many of Trump's enforcement actions have been similar to those carried out under Obama in terms of immigration raids, uh, deporting people who are supposedly criminals. And I think the big difference we see between the previous administration and this administration is the ramping up of the fear campaigns and the scare tactics that are meant to push immigrants out of the country, perhaps. And time will tell. So if these fear tactics are so successful, what do we even need a giant wall for? You know, the the border between the United States and Mexico today is as secure as it ever has been. There are already 650 miles of border wall. Migration from Mexico has dropped considerably. And in fact, net migration is at zero or even below zero. So the symbolic importance of arguing for the wall and of carrying out the scapegoating and the fear campaigns meant to place the blame on immigrants for perhaps larger political economic problems and questions of unemployment and economic suffering that so many Americans are feeling today. That is old and that is tried and true throughout American history. 
Adam Goodman is a historian at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's writing a book on the history of deportations. Joanne, Nathan, what I take away from this show is that fear is actually a key policy in the history of immigration. It's not just fear. It's the theater of fear. It's the performance that Mm. that is meant to get people fearful, that is meant to encourage people to take action, to quote-unquote self-deport, which is a term that I hate. You mentioned theater of fear, Joanne. I mean, I wonder who that performance is for, right? Is it as much for the average American voter who needs a greater sense of security, you know, from mm. you know the, the notion that a wall is going to be built? Or or is it for the undocumented who is meant to basically, you know, hightail it out of the country before ICE knocks on their door? It kind of has to be a little bit of both, right? Yeah. There you have the, the, the craft and statecraft <laughs> is that if you come down too hard on one side or another, you're going to get pushback. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that this tactic is so psychological, if you will, is mm. we have very mixed feelings about immigration in the first place. I mean, for much of American history, for most immigrants that come here, they're basically being encouraged to come here, often to fill America's insatiable need for labor. It's such an ingrained part of American identity, too, that, that we're a nation of immigrants. But so much of this is about national identity, right. insiders, outsiders, aliens. I mean, the, the clash, I guess, of symbolism and sort of brute level reality that we're talking about here is, is really striking. So here, here's the thing. And this links Chinese exclusion. It links Mexican-American immigration. You know, it links the concerns now about terrorists, right? I mean, we imagine the country as a white country. And we're much more ready to accept migrants from Britain, parts of Europe, you know, even from, you know, Russia, frankly, than we are, you know, from the places of the world that we consider to be the global south or East Asia. I mean, that's just a fact. When nativism gets stoked up and it has its greatest traction, it's against those people who are considered to be, you know, non-white. I mean, the fact that we have concerns now about, you know, Russian interference in the election or that there are concerns during World War II about German Nazis landing on American shores, none of that had the same kind of visceral consequence that it's had relative to Arab people, relative now to South Asian people, relative to Mexican-Americans. I mean, we have to just be willing to acknowledge, at least for a moment, that with the fear button, it, it rings and it resonates largely because the country imagines itself and, and the white Americans of this country imagine the nation to be a white nation, and it needs to stay that way in order for the country to be America. Although I think you have to broaden the definition of white. I think it is racial, but I I guess what I'm thinking of is I'm going back to early America when, you know, the the Irish, for example, were considered a them and not an us. Catholics were considered a them and not an us. So I I, I do think it, it is very much about race, but, but that even that in and of itself isn't always framed the same way. Well, no, I, I would completely agree with that and in the sense that the them is always a non-white them. That's all I would say right, is that right, the right, Irish right. Get, get incorporated. Right. But, you know, I think in a, in a weird way, I mean, it's, it's hard to disentangle race and immigration and policy. I mean, maybe we shouldn't disentangle it. But I, I think, you know, at the base of this, we should ask the question, is it possible to have an effective immigration policy mm-hmm. that's not based on fear? Right. I'd like to hope so. 
So that's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning history questions. You can find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And feel free to review the new show in the iTunes store. Whatever you decide to do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Aidan Lee, Courtney Spagna, Robin Blue, and Elizabeth Spach. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza and Poddington Bear. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.